Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, and I love New York. New York is a city of amazing neighborhoods. On most shows, like tonight's, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and its current energy, what makes that particular New York neighborhood special. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians, and artists. Sometimes we host a show about an interesting and vital color of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. In the past, if you've been regularly tuning into the show, which I hope you have, you've heard us cover the history of U.S. presidents who came from, lived in, or had some interesting history here in New York. About half of them did, by the way. The history of the women's suffrage movement in the city. We've talked about the city's LGBT community and the history of the gay rights movement. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling, which have been here for 200 years, believe it or not. And we've also covered the history of punk and opera in the city. They were separate shows, by the way. We didn't put them together. In the future, we will journey to some of the city's parks or the subway or some of our grander train stations with a city in an age of a specific social or political movement. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight, we're visiting one of the oldest places in New York City, one that has seen an incredible amount of change over the years, and now is one of my favorite places to go in New York, the South Street Seaport. Our first guest is Captain Jonathan Bulware. He's the president and CEO of the South Street Seaport Museum. Captain Bulware has nearly 25 years' experience in nonprofit leadership, education, and historic ships. He's a passionate advocate for experiential learning, and he's reinvigorated the Seaport Museum education and public programming, both ashore and afloat, which we're going to ask him about, and reestablished the role of the museum as the beating heart of the original Seaport of New York. Captain Bulware joined the Seaport Museum in November 2011. In October 2012, he directed the preparation of the fleet in advance of Hurricane Sandy. Working with staff, volunteers, and industry experts, he formulated a plan to weather the predicted storm surge and win. Believe it or not, all of the museum's vessels survived the hurricane intact. For this effort, Captain Bulware was awarded the Metropolitan Waterfronts Alliance's Hero of the Harbor Award for preservation of this important maritime resource in the city. While managing the museum's recovery from Sandy, Captain Bulware directed the city-funded $13 million restoration of the 1885 full-rigged sailing ship Wavertree, which we'll talk about. It's the crown jewel of the Seaports Museum's fleet of ships. That restoration, unprecedented in history of the country, by the way, has been awarded the New York State Preservation League's Excellence in Preservation Award and the coveted Lucy G. Moses Award. It's also known as the Oscars of Preservation. That was from the New York Landmarks Conservancy. Captain Bulwer still maintains a United States Coast Guard license as captain of vessels of 500 tons upon oceans. That's the open oceans, everyone. Captain Bulwer, welcome to Rediscovering New York. Great to be with you. Thank you for having me, Jeff. God, what a personal and professional history you have. You grew up in Mystic, Connecticut. Uh, born in Mystic. Grew up kind of in East Haddam in the sticks of Connecticut, but my, my sort of spiritual home, if you will, is uh, on Fisher's Island Sound and the waters adjacent to Mystic, where I grew up around the museum there. When did you first develop your love of the sea? I think I was sort of... Born um, with it? Yeah, born, born with it. I, the legend, family legend has it that I was sailing when I was three days old, which I think suggests some uh, parental poor judgment. Did you have a life jacket in three days? <laughs> uh, questionable. Uh, okay. Well, you're here to tell the tale. That's, uh, they didn't do that much that, uh, that were wrong. Um, did you professionally captain? I did, yeah. I actually um, I started out, I, I learned to sail in the Mystic River in little wooden boats. I uh, learned to sail actually in Mystic Seaport Museum's boats. And then when I was 19, I went to sea in a square rigged ship, a wooden square rigged ship, which is a very unusual thing to do in the... Uh, 20th century, which it was at the time. Um, not at all unusual at that age. In fact, I was a little old for it if it had been the 18th century. But yeah, I went to sea in a, in a square rig ship and I sailed from um, Bridgeport and then New York to the Caribbean, uh, Bermuda, to San Juan, Puerto Rico, kicking around the islands and then back up the uh, Atlantic coast. I got wet, I got cold, I got paid $50 a week and I loved it. 
and the rest has been on the books ever since. Yeah, I mean, it's a, the rest is a, is a career that built from that. I was a deckhand there, and then I was a deckhand somewhere else, and then I worked toward a sort of what I'll call an entry-level Coast Guard captain's license, and then I became a mate and worked in the main schooner fleet, so passenger sailing schooners. But a lot of these are just, they're traditional vessels. Most of the vessels I've worked in are education ships, so they have a, the, the vessel itself is a platform. So it has a function, and I think that's one of my, my favorite things about that, which actually has tendrils into the Seaport Museum as well, is that uh, I, I've spent very little time sailing for the purpose of recreation. For the most part, it's been sailing for some sort of purpose. And in that respect, it's kind of commercial and of a lineage that's hundreds and even thousands of years old. In our case, it was carrying students, occasionally passengers, but mostly students. And you know, even now at the Seaport Museum, we're using vessels and historic buildings and printing presses in that same function, kind of commercially in a way that perpetuates the skills as well as the artifacts. Hmm. We'll talk about the Seaport Museum in a bit. Um, I wanted to ask you, what were some of your earlier involvements in nonprofits and also in education? Well, that first Chip I joined in uh, 1992 was a, run by a nonprofit, and I've been with a couple of years hiatus, hiatuses, hiatuses, breaks, a couple of year breaks here and there. I've been at that pretty consistently since 1992. Maybe hiatus. Hiatus. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. So you know, I started out. I mean, quite literally at, at on deck, right? I started um, uh, as a deckhand in a ship, and then I, uh, I I worked my way up to captain. I became a uh, an institutional staff director. I got I had a really great boss uh, at an organization called Soundwaters in Stamford, Connecticut, an environmental education organization who really kept moving the goalpost for me. Um, added me to a strategic planning committee of the board, and and kind of continued to make things hard for me, make make the learning curve steep, which is my favorite thing. Well, that's it's, the way to do it. And indeed. Become an expert in something. Right. So, you know, viewed in hindsight, my career follows this very logical looking progression of increased levels of responsibility in nonprofits. I will say candidly that a lot of us, myself and my wife included, numerous times wondered where it was all going to go. What with this fooling around with old ships. And now here you are the uh, directing and leading uh, a really fabulous New York museum dedicated to the history of of, of shipping and also seafaring in New York. It's the best job in the world. Um, we'll talk about the museum in a bit, but I wanted to talk about the history of the neighborhood that's now known as the South Street Seaport. Um, before getting into some of the tidbits that people like to hear, um, in, our, in our phone call earlier, you talked about the seaport and its original history as having some of the most important history of any New York neighborhood or industry. Um, you want to tell our listeners why you, you feel that about, about, about the seaport? Yeah, one of the great privileges of my job is I get to spend time thinking about what defines New York. So we are one of a group of museums that are really focused on telling stories of New York, the historical stories of New York. And there are many good and worthy uh, New York institutions that are historically focused and New York focused. Ours is unique in, I think, two ways. One is we exist in the fabric of the story that we tell. We exist in the original buildings, the original piers, and even the original ships that tell the story of New York. Um, and I'll come back to that in a second. The, the second is that um, we are uh, interpreting these things in an environment that allows us to bring this directly to life. So it can be um, your, tr your sort of traditional museum experience where you have historical artifacts interpreted, curated, brought together into a narrative, but some of those stories can be done anywhere. In fact, there are even traveling exhibitions where the exhibition can be taken out of its place. We really value, I think, two things. One is that place really matters, that we tell the stories of the birthplace of New York in the birthplace of New York. Uh, and the second is that we value the entire story of the artifact. So in the case of our ships, we don't just preserve them and keep them wrapped in cotton wool. We actually, in some cases, sail them. And we train people on how to sail them. So we have people who are coming in, like I did at 19 years old, as a deckhand with no experience, or even a volunteer with no experience, and working their way up to deckhand and mate, and even in some cases captain. And we're, we're perpetuating then not just the existence of the artifact, but the skills as well. Why did docks and the shipping industry develop on the East River, where, where they ultimately did, uh, adjacent to where the South Street Seaport is now, instead of on the Hudson? 
Um, the Hudson was certainly bigger, and it would have been less troublesome to, to navigate ships, I think. Uh, I'm not a seafarer, but uh, because the currents in the East River were really treacherous. Yeah, well, the, the simple answer to why the East Side rather than the West Side is that um, there, there are two reasons. One is uh, ice, and the other is wind. So the prevailing violent winds in New York City are westerlies. They're either southwesterlies in the summer or they're northwesterlies in the winter. Uh, so the East Side, the East River, is protected by the landmass and now by the towers of buildings that we have. Um, uh, but it's also protected from the ice, which was more of a problem in the North River, now mostly called the Hudson River, but the North River, uh, by the fact that the current is so rapid, right? So there's two major protectants. But it's also, this is an opportunity to kind of draw the lens back here. And um, let me just compress the entire city of, uh, history of the city of New York into about a minute, right? The, there's, a, there's this really interesting pair of things about New York that, that distinguish it from most other cities in the world, cer certainly uh, the East Coast of the United States. So if you think about in the 18th century, in the 1700s, uh, this was uh, a Dutch trading colony, or in the 1600s, a Dutch trading colony. It became an English colony, uh, ultimately became the early United States. But it, it was founded originally by the Dutch as a secular colony, as a uh, as a trade colony, which is dis which is different from every other East Coast port. All the rest of these ports were founded first as religious colonies. They were founded by Puritans, principally, right? Well, the English, the Spanish, and the Portuguese, also very Catholic, and even the French had a different focus from just make money and send it back and, you know, serve our mercantile interests. Right, so the Dutch principles of tolerance and trade, right, and tr tolerance largely because it gets in the way, you know, the lack of it gets in the way of trade, but... One of these things is that, that New York was actually founded as a business colony, as a trade colony. It had geographic advantage even before the Erie Canal. It had a connection up the North River to, you know, as far as Albany and farther beyond. Um, so the ability to get goods inland and get goods out was, was advantageous. It had a deep water harbor that was well protected from the ocean. So it had a geographic advantage from the beginning. Um, it also, they, they had really smart uh, trade duties, right? It became cheaper to land a cargo from Europe in New York than in Boston. Now, we don't. We look at Mercator projections most of the time instead of globes. But if you actually look at the Earth itself, Boston's a lot closer to Europe than New York is. But Boston, founded as a religious colony, not as a trade colony, and, and actually with higher trade duties for landing cargoes, uh, merchants would prefer landing in New York, even if they had to then take their uh, cargo by rail or by coastal vessel back up to Boston because it was cheaper to do so. So economic advantage, but. Really, when we look at this, there's this period in the 19th century where um, there's half a dozen East Coast ports that are kind of vying for prominence. There's uh, Charleston, there's Boston, there's Philadelphia, there's New York. There's a bunch of these that are kind of equivalent in terms of throughput. But New York takes this set of smart decisions about tr trade duties, highly, highly competitive. And then, of course, the opening of the Erie Canal in 1825, which takes what was merely a superior position and makes it absolutely dominant. And there's a story that, again, happens toward the end of the 19th century we can come back to. But, but what I want to say is it, what's interesting about this is that New York emerges from a Dutch trading colony to the financial capital of the world in a space of less than 400 years. It enjoys the position as the busiest port in the world for 100 years. The story of New York is, I would submit, the most rapid growth of human prosperity in the history of the human race. People call it the greatest city in the world. I think so. But, but the story of its beginning, I think, is one of the greatest stories mm -hmm. told. Have you read Russell Shorter's book, The Island in the Center of the World? Of course. Yes, it's a great, uh, it's a great book. In it's fact, I'm citing some of his, uh, <laughs> his observations in what I just said. It's my favorite book about New York. And uh, it's funny because you read uh, about one of the things I love about that book is you read about what New Amsterdam was like in the 1640s. And it's like, that sounds like New York today. I yeah. mean, the, the people, what they did and, and, and how they were engaged in commerce and, uh, you know, in little interpersonal yeah. <laughs> dramas and all that stuff, much like the city is today. Um, we're going to take a break in a minute, um, but uh, just to talk a little bit about the history of the seaport. Um, uh, a lot of people may not know that the, the seaport was not as big as it is now. Uh, the original line of the shore went to what we know now as Pearl Street. There were oyster shells, and so people, the, the Dutch called it Oyster Street. They expanded down to Water Street uh, in the 17th century with landfill. That was something that would happen in, in, in lower New York. Uh, it went down to Front Street in the 18th century. In the early 19th Street, it extended to, uh, to South Street. 
Uh, one of the interesting uh, streets is actually Peck Slip, which is really almost too wide to be a street. How did that come to be so wide? Yeah, I mean, the name is the clue, right? Uh, all across the lower part of Manhattan, from Corlears Hook down to the Battery, you find these uh, remnants of what's called a slip. And that was actually a way that the river was allowed to enter into the city. It was effectively a, uh, a parking spot for ships. So they would come in floating into the open slip, and that's where they would discharge their cargo. So when you come up from the Battery, walking along the Esplanade, you will pass old slip and Coenchi's uh, 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 slip and you'll pass uh, Peck slip and um, Burling slip. Each one of these was a place where the, the ships would pull in and that was the, the moment of trade, right? That's the place where the ships could actually discharge their cargo. And then, of course, those were filled in as well to create more land for other commerce. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Captain Jonathan Bolware of the South Street Seaport Museum. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back to Rediscovering New York in our episode about the South Street Seaport. My first guest is Captain Jonathan Bulware, the president and CEO of the South Street Seaport Museum. Um, there's an interesting uh, building. It's actually the third oldest building in Manhattan. It's only three, one of three to predate the American Revolution. And that's the Joseph Rose House. Uh, it was built by a sea captain originally. Uh, but it also has some very interesting post-18th century history. Do you want to share what that is? Or yeah, sure. Is? I mean, it is one of the loveliest buildings in the seaport. It is now residential. Um, it's located on Water Street. Uh, it's 273 Water Street. You can walk right by it anytime you like. Its current facade, which is just a lovely little building, uh, belies its, uh, its history. So first to put it into context... In the period that we're talking about, uh, you know, this building was built in the, what was, what's the year? You know the year. 1775. Right. So, um, thank you for saving me on that. The, uh, uh, but by the, by the 19th century, it was, the seaport had really emerged as a, as a, what was called the wickedest ward in the city. Um, it, Lord have the, mercy. What, yeah, what, sure. what was going on? And by the time of the Civil War, it was referred to as a sea of wretchedness and sin. And one of the real uh, uh, focal points of this was this Joseph Rose House, which um, actually was operated by a guy called Kit Burns as a uh, rat pit. And this was a place where you'd come in and there were dogs and the dogs would, they'd bring in these plump brown, you know, rats from the waterfront and the dogs would attack and tear the rats apart. Uh, he had, a, I think, a son-in-law who for a uh, dime would bite the head off a mouse and for a quarter would bite the head off a rat. Um, this was a, a pretty vile establishment, right? Ooh. But, um, you know, it's really a, a, pretty, a pretty tawdry bit. But there's actually a, an interesting story about this place, which I can't for, say for sure is true, but it, it makes some sense, is that there was a, a minister who managed to hold some services in there from 12 to 1 and, and said that he had converted Kit Burns. Uh, but in fact, what was later learned was that Kit Burns was earning $150 a month from the preacher 
for holding services in there. So I think Kit uh, did not get saved. Oh, well, maybe he did it in the in the next lifetime. That 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 I don't think we'll ever know. Um, like much of the story of New York, Campton Bulware um, and its historic industries, the neighborhood uh, declined because industry changed. Um, when did the shipping industry leave uh, the area of South Street, and why did it do that? Yeah, it left uh, by the 1880s. It was starting in the 1860s, but the, by the 1880s, South Street was uh, was pretty backwatery in terms of the New York port. I think it's important to note that while the neighborhood was declining, the city was rising tremendously. And part of what drove that migration to the West Side piers, to the Hudson River piers, was that the size of ships was uh, getting bigger. Right? The, that uh, the advent of wrought iron and subsequently steel uh, later on in the middle of the 20th century or early 20th century welded steel, these made the construction of much larger and much larger and much larger ships possible. Right. So. Which I mean, also you think made about it, uh, shipping more economical because you can fit a lot more goods into bigger ships. Right. Uh, but it also made the East River untenable, right? Imagine trying to bring a liner the size of Britannic or Olympic or Titanic into the East River, setting aside that they wouldn't fit at the pier, but even just the current and maneuvering in that small bit between the Brooklyn Bridge, which these bigger ships wouldn't fit under, uh, and the battery. It's just untenable. So the focus for maritime transport moved to the west side over there and in some, in some bit to New Jersey, where incidentally now it resides. I said earlier that New York was the busiest port in the world for 100 years. It's now the 17th busiest port in the world. That's not trivial. It's the 17th busiest port in the world. So I think people sort of forget that we are a port. People Mm. forget that we were a port before we were a city, and we are still a port today. Of course, the ports are now in Brooklyn and in New Jersey uh, with, with, the, with the advent of container shipping. Right. Which, by the way, also killed the uh, shipping uh, industry on the, west, uh, on the west side piers. But that's for another episode of another time. Um, like so many neighborhoods, when some industries move away or die, um, even though there's decay, it also can create a palette for new kinds of local businesses and opportunities for regeneration. And that's what happened in the South Street Seaport. Uh, One of the things that heralded the revitalization of the neighborhood was the founding of the museum. When was the museum founded, and what was the vision of it? It was founded in 1967, but I think i got to go back a few years in order to lay the context for why it was founded in the first place. So if you think about it, if you go back a couple of decades, you're in the time in New York in which... If I pause for a moment, and I just one of my favorite thoughts about this city is that I, I like to think of it having essential defining characteristics. One of them is that it was a port before it was a city. The other is that it is ambitious. New York rewards and nurtures ambition unlike any other city in the world. And from a real estate and building standpoint, that manifests itself as a lot of destruction and rebuilding. How often have you seen some building torn down and then something else built in its place, right? All the time, until the landmark law. <laughs> well, right. And so, and and so the, the excesses of Robert Moses in tension with people like Jane Jacobs um, began to, to uh, lay a certain reluctance among some New Yorkers. And, the, of course, the galvanizing moment was the destruction of Pennsylvania Station and the subsequent saving of Grand Central. The Landmarks Law really was the outgrowth of that, right? And when the Landmarks Law passed very shortly after, in 1967, the South Street Seaport Museum was founded. But it would, was only possible because the Landmarks Law passed first. And what happened was that little 11-block historic district of, uh, of the city, uh, the, the last remnant of the old port, right? So we, we talk about it as the birthplace of modern New York. But, of course, the district that we're describing, this low-scale 19th-century brick construction, counting house, warehouse, et cetera, uh, that housed a, a million different shipping-related businesses, that went from uh, the Brooklyn Bridge to the Battery. It went from the Brooklyn Bridge up to Corlears Hook. It was over in Brooklyn. It was you know, on the west side, too. Um, we just have the last bit of it. We just happen to have the last remnant of the birthplace of New York. Mm. So this group of preservationists set aside both the district and they they conceived of the museum. And it was uh, was brought about by volunteers. It had the support of of Astors and Carnegie's. Uh, It had the mayoral fiat of John Lindsay. And the thing all of a sudden came to be, but not as a museum proper, not the way you think of a, you know, four walls and a bunch of ex- exhibitions within, but rather the entirety of the district and a bunch of piers and a bunch of ships. And the idea was that the museum would bring all of this into good repair and, and ex- exhibit it to the public, and that there would be mercantile activity, that there would be 
you know, businesses and so forth and people living there that uh, would, would feed the needs of the museum monetarily. That, that's a story perhaps for another show because there's a whole half hour on how that model has failed. But, but what is true is that there was this magic moment in the middle 60s where this district that might have at one point been raised to create the World Trade Center, that was a plan at one point, was in fact instead preserved. And that now here we are 52 years later with uh, a seaport museum that is truly a gem in New York and a gem worldwide. Oh boy, is it? It's one, I don't know the actual numbers, but it has to be the neighborhood of the city where the highest percentages of buildings are, uh, were built before 1800 or around 1800. Right, it's, it's the largest collection of 19th old. century uh, structures in the city. You yeah. know, as I, um, the museum's mission was sort of mission accomplished early on. I remember when I was 12 or 13, my mother, who uh, when uh, all of my relatives were moving out to the suburbs, you know, in the 60s and early 70s thing. You know, mom, who was from Coney Island, uh, loved uh, New York, and she took us around, and uh, she took us to the South Street Seaport Museum in the early 70s. And there was nothing there except the museums, except the ship, except the docks, the ships, and some of the old, uh, the fish market, of fish course, market, and some yeah. of the old line businesses, like the Paris Cafe and some of the bars, uh, which, by the way, used to be able to be open from 4 to 8 a.m. in the morning because they got special dispensations from uh, the legislature in order to, to uh, uh, serve the fish workers their, uh, their, their liquor when they came off the job. Um, we don't have a ton of time left, but I do want to uh, uh, spend some time talking about um, some of the real gems of the museum, uh, which actually, as a, as, a, as a young boy, really illuminated me. It's going onto that pier and seeing those ships. Let's talk about some of the ships um, uh, and some of the history behind it. One of the ones that I went on early on that I was fascinated by was the Ambrose. And the Ambrose was a very important vessel for what it did for New York and also for the person who's named after it. Right, yeah. The person who it is named after, excuse right, me. Right, so the, the lightship Ambrose, a lightship is a floating lighthouse, and in, they were built by the United States Lighthouse Establishment that was later folded into the Coast Guard. And their purpose was to mark a, a hazard or safe water in places where the building of a lighthouse was impractical. Now, in this case... Uh, and here's where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pitch. I'm going to say that this is this light, lightship Ambrose, which is properly called LV-87, is the most important existent historic ship to the story of New York City. And the reason is, uh, in the late 19th century, a young Irish immigrant who had come to New York and been trained as an engineer, became a prominent civil engineer, built the 2nd and 6th Avenue elevated trains, uh, he was the one who proposed and ultimately lobbied to Congress the idea of digging what we now call the Ambrose Channel, which goes from, I don't know, 13 or 15 miles off of the Verrazano Narrows and up that whole shallow lower New York Bay. Why do we need a channel? Well, remember we talked about the shipping moving from the East River to the West Side? The ships are getting bigger. They're getting deeper, right? So in order to accommodate that bigger, deeper traffic, in, order, in other words, for New York to hold on to its crown as the busiest port in the world, it had to adapt. It had to do an infrastructure improvement. And what Ambrose suggested was the digging of a channel. And it was uh, audacious, and it was expensive, and it took a long time to do. But he did prevail. The federal government got involved, and the channel was dug. Now, unfortunately, John Wolfe Ambrose died before its completion. When it opened in 1908, they named it the Ambrose Channel. Now, our lightship, that particular lightship, which is one of 613 lightships that were made by the wow. lighthouse establishment in the Coast Guard, there are lots of them. Why is ours special? Because it was the lightship that opened the Ambrose Channel. It was the first Ambrose lightship. And here is where I really love it. Who was coming into New York City, right? In, in, in the 19th century, well into the 20th century, if you arrived at New York, New York, you arrived by ship. It's only recently that people arrived by plane. So if you arrived at New York from across the ocean, it was not by plane, it was by ship. So everybody... And more immigrants passed through New York to come to the United States than any place else indeed. until Ellis Island was uh, closed. Right, and, and so for an immigrant coming into New York City, the first light you would see of New York. The first light you would see of the New World was the Ambrose Lightship. Wow, before the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> well before the Statue of Liberty. And so what I like to think about is, and actually there's a practical thing here, which is that in the 20s when immigration quotas came into play, there were actually limited number of spots for a given nationality. So if you imagine that you're an Irishman trying to come in and get one of, call it 50 or 100,000 spots, you actually were counted not when you reached Ellis Island, not when you saw the Statue of Liberty, which was ceremonial only, but rather when you passed the Ambrose Lightship, and not just any Ambrose Lightship, our Ambrose Lightship, the one that we have at the museum. So LV-87, Ambrose, in her career as Ambrose Lightship, saw six and a half million immigrants pass by her 
go on to Ellis Island, 98% or so of them found a place in the New World and found themselves in the Lower East Side, found themselves taking trains to the West, uh, and became mm. Americans. And that was ultimately replaced by the Ambrose Light Tower, which you actually can see when you fly into, I mean, if you're on a ship, you're coming in, but if you're flying into JFK over the ocean and it's nighttime, you can see that light, and on a really clear day, you can actually see the platform. Right. Um, we're almost out of time, Captain Bulware. Um, let's talk about the waiver tree. That is uh, uh, another crown jewel. Can you have two crown jewels in a, in a Sure. Collection? Yeah. Crown's um, big. The waiver tree. You've just completed a pretty substantial renovation of it. Yeah. Uh, we have um, the last surviving three-masted iron sailing ship in the world. And her connection to New York mm-hmm. is fairly um, brief. She called at New York at least once that we know. But why she is special to us is that she tells the other half of the story. We've spent a lot of time talking about the city itself. But a port is really a breakpoint in transportation, right? In order to make something a port, you got to have ships. And they got to be ocean-going ships. So we managed in 1968 to lay our hands on one of the last surviving of the mighty wind jammers of the age of sail. Most of them were lost at sea or broken up for scrap or ended up on a bank somewhere, South Georgia Island or something. But Wavertree was repurposed a number of times. And now, after a $13 million city-funded renovation that we did in 2015 into 2016, she is back as the flagship of the Seaport Museum's fleet. And if you look at our logo, which uh, I can't uh, show you on radio here, but um, we really we demonstrate the port in the form of a particular building in the seaport called Skirmhorn Row, and we demonstrate the connection of that port to the rest of the world using the sailing ship Wavertree. Fundamentally, our museum is about the connection that the port has. It's a trade connection, it's a cultural connection, it's a financial connection. You have the city, the growing city, and on the other side of it, you have these ships that when you go out the Narrows and go past the Ambrose Lightship, you turn left or straight or go right, and you can go to Fuchau or Adelaide or Sydney or Seattle or name a port in the world. The sea connects all of those to New York City, and that was what built New York. And the Waver Tree is accessible and people can go and see it. Of yes, course, you indeed. have to go to the South Street Seaport Museum. How can people find out about the museum if they don't already know about it? Where well, can you can go? visit us at southstreetseaportmuseum.org, of course, and you can just walk right on down to Fulton Street, Fulton and South, location of the Fulton Ferry that connected the city of Brooklyn to the city of New York in the 19th century. Fulton and South Streets, 12 Fulton Street is our entrance. Mm-hmm. Wednesday to Sunday, 11 to 5. Sunday through Wednesday. Don't go on Monday and Tuesday. Well, you can actually see the ships from the docks, folks, but you can't get on them. Or go into the museum, which is on Skirmerhorn Road. Can I add one more thing here? Absolutely. So there's, you know, going to the museum, um, particularly in the, in the warmer months, means something more than just uh, touring galleries. Now, come any time of the year. We've got things to show you. But in the warmer months from about uh, uh, May to October, we have two vessels, a 1930 wooden tugboat, last surviving wooden New York-built tug, and an 1885 schooner. These are both historical artifacts, part of the museum's collection, but we take them sailing. You can go sailing on historic New York Harbor on a historic vessel. I think we're the only museum in the city that offers that. Wow. Website again is? SouthStreetSeaportMuseum.org. Captain Jonathan Bulware, President and CEO of the South Street Seaport Museum, thank you so much for coming on Rediscovering New York. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to speak to our second guest, who's a business owner and resident and community activist in the seaport. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. 
You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York, especially its neighborhoods, and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and is also podcasted. You can like this show on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle on those channels are JeffGoodmanNYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One of the note before we get to our second guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about the real estate business in New York, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in this amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Our second guest is Maura Kilgore. Maura was born in Brooklyn, uh, grew up mostly on Long Island, but has lived in four out of the five boroughs. I don't think I've met many people who have lived in most of the city's boroughs. She's a graduate of Fordham University and Boston College Law School. Having worked her way through school in the restaurant industry, Maura found that she missed it and soon returned as a manager at Cowgirl in the West Village, where I used to patronize a lot when I used to work in the neighborhood. In 2000, she relocated to the Outer Banks of North Carolina, of all places, to open a catering business and several ice cream stores. I used to work at an ice cream store, by the way, when I was a teenager. By 2009, in the wake of a financial crisis that particularly impacted vacation areas, Maura yearned to return home to New York. Luckily, Sherry Del Martyr, who is the founder of Cowgirl and another great New York restaurant, Tortilla Flats, had just found a gem of a location for a new restaurant, and Maura became a founding partner and the general manager of Cowgirl Seahorse. Ten years later, she and the Cowgirl Seahorse have survived bridge repainting, street recobbling, and the mother of all storms, Superstorm Standing. She's a founding member of the Old Seaport Alliance, which is a neighborhood association formed in the wake of Sandy, as well as a resident of the seaport. Maura, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you. You're from New York originally. Um, how old were you when your family moved to Long Island? I was two years old when we moved to Long Island. I was there through, um, through high school. What decided, I'm going to talk about your, your career a little before you wound up in, uh, <laughs> back in New York and in the seaport. What had you decide not to pursue a career in law when you, had been, when you went to school for it? And obviously at one point you wanted to be, go into the law. I honestly knew about halfway through law school that I, I didn't really want to practice law. And I, you know, I, I finished law school, took the bar and, and worked as a legal editor for a while. Um, and it just, I really missed the um, restaurant industry, which I worked my way through school in and uh, wanted to go back to it. So I answered an ad in the Village Voice, the old way to get jobs in New York, and ended up at the Cowgirl in the West Village. And you moved to the Outer Banks, so we're, you know, we're talking about the sea and the water, and you, can, you, know, you, you, you can't get much more maritime and ocean-going than the Outer Banks. What uh, took you down there for the time you were there? Um, actually, my ex-husband had gone to school in North Carolina, and we spent many vacations there and had a plan together to move and open our business there. I took my best friend, Gail Courtney, with me, who is also uh, my, still my partner at the, at the Cowgirl Seahorse, and we've been together for since we were 17 years old at Fordham University. I'm oh, very wow. lucky to have her in my life. Yeah. 
And you returned to New York, and then in 2009, Sherry asked you to partner with her, and Cowgirl Seahorse was born. Why the seaport? What, what had Sherry and you decide, this is, this is, this is where we're going to open up this business? Well, uh, that's really, that really is to Sherry's credit. She has lived in the seaport. She raised her children there. She is still there on Pearl Street. Um, and when she saw this location open up, is a beautiful landmark space on the sort of outskirts of the seaport. Um, and she really saw the connection that the kind of restaurant that she has, has uh, run in the past in New York would be a good fit for the neighborhood. There was nothing like it down there. Kid-friendly but fun. Good margaritas. Recession-proof food, you know, <laughs> affordable but, but, you know, quality. And it's also, you know, one of the things I love about, about Cowgirl Seahorse is that uh, you know, with all every part of the seaport uh, of the seaport is seahorse. Here, tongue tied here. Of the seaport is vibrant, and um, there's a lot of business that goes on. But I really like the couple of blocks on the northern end of it because that's sort of outside the main tourist drag. Uh, and um, uh, right by the Brooklyn Bridge is where is where Cowgirl Seahorse is. The building you're in has to be like a, almost 200 yes, years it's, old. It's from the mid 1700s. It's wow. like I should have should have reviewed the actual date before I came, but it's uh, it's quite old and it, it is landmarked. And you just don't live and operate your business in the seaport. You're passionately engaged with the neighborhood and its well-being. You're a founding member of the Old Seaport Alliance. Tell us about the alliance and what it does and how it was founded. So um, in the wake of the hurricane, the local business owners uh, banded together to sort of try and um, wade our way through the through the mess afterwards. And Hurricane Sandy was in 2012, for uh, those listeners yes. who don't know exactly. Yes. So, But we soon realized that the um, same issues and concerns that we had for the neighborhood were shared by the residents. So we expanded and became uh, both a resident and business uh, association. Um, it has always been a part of our mission to celebrate the spirit of the history of the area while trying to uh, promote the growth and resiliency. And I will say that I still don't believe that we are resilient to the next storm. There is definitely uh, some work to be done in in Lower Manhattan to um, for future generations, but I hope that happens sooner than later. You're talking about the protections. Sure. We've uh, been reading a lot about the the plan to build a seawall uh, along the East River, but the plans that I've seen are actually from somewhere north of the Brooklyn Bridge all the way up to 14th Street, I think it is. Um, are there any plans that you know of to, to, to build a wall down on... Uh, I still don't think they've settled on a plan, for the best plan for the area. There have been a lot of things that have happened, and I... Um, there are small things happening. I see sand barriers being put up around some of the areas and stuff, but I do, I do not think that there's a cohesive plan for the area at this point. You know, the technology really does exist. One uh, uh, of uh, the places that I've been to a lot and used to, uh, in some sense, has been a second home for me is New Orleans. And uh, along the banks of the Mississippi in New Orleans, aside, they do have levees, but there are breaks on the levees. And where they do, they have these big walls, and they have these gates that could be... 30 or 40 feet wide and they're on wheels and, they, and you look at the bottom of it and they have like almost hermetically sealed things that when, the, when those gates shut and they have several times they were, they were shut for Katrina but the water never came over the Mississippi ironically um, uh, that technology does exist and they could do it Yes, they're they've made leaps and bounds, but it hasn't quite they haven't quite found the right fit I gather for Lower Manhattan I hope they figure that out Um Let's talk about the seaport as a neighborhood. Um, what is it that you like about it? The seaport, um, for me, the, what's really special is that it's a small town in the big city. We have a very um, community vibe down there. We are um, one of the few places in the world, as Captain Bulwar told us, where you can see these beautiful historical buildings with the financial skyrisers of the of, of uh, Wall Street right behind it. We're, we're very much very New York City and very much a small town community. It's very special. What kind of changes have you seen lately in the neighborhood? Uh, have you seen, have, has the neighborhood changed? Not so much because of Sandy, but just, but just in general as the neighborhood has, has been evolving? It, it definitely is always evolving, which is, you know, uh, one of the things I do like about it. Um, we've, we we have seen a lot of changes in, um, I think all of Lower Manhattan has seen a lot of changes from a more 
business model to a lot of residential. Uh, we've seen more schools, more families, growth of that kind. That has really changed the face of the neighborhood and what the neighborhood wants in the new buildings and new structures that are happening. New parks are being built. New, new sky rises are being proposed. It's always a changing face. But I know there's, there's one thing that's not so easily changeable. Uh, uh, on one side of Peck Slip, there's a parking lot. Uh, and uh, they discovered, or they uh, doing a little bit of digging, no pun intended, they discovered that there was, in the old days, there was a thermometer factory. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of mercury down in that, uh, in, yes, in, in the been, land. And we've been hearing quite a lot about that and mm-hmm. how, the, how they're going to remediate that. I'm not sure they've settled on that plan yet either. <laughs> you can't just dig it up, that's no. for sure. <laughs> um, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Maura Kilgore, Seaport resident, partner and general manager of Cowgirl Seahorse. We'll be back in a moment. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media. My guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com We're back. To rediscovering New York, and you're also back to rediscovering New York with my second guest, Maura Kilgore. Maura Kilgore, sorry, Maura of Cowgirl Seahorse. Um, Cowgirl Seahorse also has some interesting things going on aside from just food and drink. Uh, I walked in uh, on Saturday to 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 say hi, and uh, to my uh, very uh, astonishing pleasure, there was a drag show going on. Is is, is that something you do every Saturday at brunch? We and the do. place was packed. Yes. I was yes. I couldn't I couldn't have even gotten a drink at the bar even if I wanted to on Saturday yes. afternoon. It is really a very fun day, but we do it once a month, the first Saturday of every month. We do um brunch uh brunch becomes her with Blake Deadly. Um Blake is a wonderful drag queen living in Fida who actually reached out to us and said there's nothing down here. Nobody is doing anything. Can we do something? And so now we're almost three years of Brunch Becomes Her. and um, That's a great name. Yeah. We've added <laughs> um, a, a drag bingo the third Sunday of every month on, from 6 to 8 p.m. And that's a lot of fun, too. There's prizes. It's free to play. And we have a good time with that as well. Who who hosts drag bingo? Uh, Blake, De- Blake, oh, Blake, De- uh, Blake okay, Deadly okay. does both. Yes, we oh. wanted to do some more. She's wonderful. And we just uh, wanted to showcase her talents in another format. <laughs> oh, great, great. And you also have some music programming at the at, at the yep. restaurant. Every right. Monday night we do live music, free, no cover. Uh, varies. We do a lot of bluegrass, some country, some singer-songwriter, um, and it's always great, great talented artists and a good time. We have a good good Monday crowd. Um, and that's always at 9 o'clock? Uh, 7 o'clock. Seven, oh, I'm sorry, yep. 7 o'clock. 7 that's o'clock, the good thing I asked. once in a while, 8 o'clock, depending on the band. But yeah, so earlier for a Monday. <laughs> How can people find out more about, about Cowgirl Seahorse? What's so, your website? Uh, what? Our website is at cowgirlseahorse.com. We also have an Instagram and a Facebook page, and we try to post those and keep those current with the upcoming uh, events and fun things going on. 
Do you know if most of your customers live in or near the seaport, Mora, or do they come from other parts of the city? How, how much of a, uh, of a sense do you have about how the business has become a locus for, of people who live, in, who live in the seaport or the financial district or in Two Bridges? <laughs> <laughs> we definitely have a, a very strong local base. And, you know, most days I walk out and I know almost everybody sitting at the bar and it's, it's, it's a, um, they become my friends and, and, and um, we see them you know, outside of the bar even now. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, uh, we do see quite a lot of people from other parts of New York and even a lot of foreign tourists. And um, I, I feel sometimes that New Yorkers know less that we're there than the foreign tourists and things who open their, you know, see us in the guidebooks and they want to come to the oldest place in New York City. But I'm not sure that everybody in New York City knows that we're there all the time. And that's a... Uh, that's one of those uh, interesting things that surprises me a bit. Well, now more people will know, but uh, you know that's one of the uh, the other side of the coin of having a place in a uh, having a business in a famous area that's not right in the middle of it. You know, be, yeah. uh, part of the charm about not being in the center of it means that you're not in the center of it. Yes. And so uh, the uh, foot traffic is not the same. Although for me, I, I, had I not known, uh, you know, just being drawn to the to the, to the base of the Brooklyn Bridge would draw me over to mm-hmm. to, to to see it, um, just to see that part of the seaport. Um, let's talk a little bit about the neighborhood. What do you feel as as a business owner and also someone who lives there that really makes the seaport unique? I, again, I go back to the sense of community that we have here. I know all the local business owners. I know, and we are there's a, a real lack of competition between us. We sort of feel like the neighborhood thrives as a whole together, and we support each other that way. And uh, most of my my regulars are neighbors, and there really is a close knit community sense down there that is very special. It's almost like going a little bit back in time to uh, uh, to uh, either an old part of New York or an old town, except yeah. except there are all the modern conveniences. You don't have yeah. oil lamps. You know, it's right. electricity and um, absolutely. Is there anything that surprises you about the South Street Seaport, about the neighborhood? I am constantly surprised that New Yorkers don't know we're there. Um, But other than that, um, nothing. (laughs) I've been there a long time. I guess uh, I'm I'm out of surprises. (laughs) Well, no, it's it's a question I like to ask people because sometimes people go, oh, yeah, there is something. And just, you know, it's an interesting way to to illuminate and, and, and to... Uh, talk about shades of a neighborhood. Um, another question I like to ask business owners, is there anything that you struggle with in the seaport? Um, well, we've been through, we've had our share of, of comebacks at the seaport, and I think the struggles are hopefully behind us at this point. And I, I, we've gone through, um, they redid the streets, they repainted the bridge next door to us, and repaved all around us and then we had the storm and I'm hoping that those struggles are behind us. Mm. As a neighborhood, is there anything that you wish that the South Street Seaport had but that doesn't have? Well, interestingly, if you had asked me a couple weeks ago, I would have said we are desperately in need of a bodega and a deli. But now you got them. My neighbors (laughs) just opened one across the street from the seahorse, which I'm very excited about. It's called The Little Shop, and it's adorable. And I I think that's going to bridge some of the gap there because otherwise it's quite a long way to civilization from our little corner on front and over. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, maybe you, someone knew that I was going to ask the question. It's kind of like going outside and carrying an umbrella and it doesn't rain. You know, someone asked that question, then someone got, maybe got the message somewhere (laughs) through the ether. Um, what advice would you have for someone looking to open up a business in the seaport? Um, are there any kinds of? It's kind of a two-part question. Are there any kinds of any kind of businesses that you think would uh, do really well there, given the people who live there and given the other businesses there? Uh, and because there are, there are plenty of bars and there are, and there are places to eat, but you know, and 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 the second part of the question is, um, if someone did want to open up a business, what kind of advice would you have for them opening up a business in the seaport as opposed to some other neighborhood in the city? Well, I mean, obviously, I feel that we have tacos and really great frozen margaritas covered, so we don't need to. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, you, know, you don't need to have any of those. No tacos um, <laughs> and margaritas, people, if anyone's thinking um, about opening a business. But I think, really, I would, um, I would embrace the, the neighbors. You know, I think that um, word of mouth and, and the close-knit community, those are resources um, to, be, to be valued, and I think that listening to those and, and 
uh, is is the best advice I could give somebody for that for our neighborhood. Mm. One question I like to ask sometimes, and uh, you might want to uh, withhold the names to protect the innocent. Uh, are there any interesting or colorful neighborhood personalities that you have come to know that uh, uh, people who are interested in the seaport now because they're listening to the program uh, would find really interesting or would find fun? Um, well, not quite as colorful as uh, Captain Bulwer had to talk about. There's, it's, it's not uh, the, the old tales are are always amusing to me. I love those. No one, uh, uh, being, no, being nobody's biting off, or, yeah. nobody's biting off any ears or anything. Darn, I really <laughs> wanted to come down and see anymore. that. Anymore. We do have, um, I'm actually on my way here, we're speaking with Barbara Mensch, who is a wonderful and talented photographer who has chronicled the South Street Seaport, the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, all of her life. And um, she is, she wanted, she made sure to point out to me to tell everybody how, how, we are invested, the people in the seaport are really invested in our community, not just financially, but in spirit. And I think that she said that very well. Um, and it's, it's, uh, she is, she is certainly a impassioned neighbor. Um, we have lots of colorful characters at the bar, but I think maybe they prefer if I don't bring them up. <laughs> well, uh, discretion being the better part of valor. <laughs> Uh, we will end it there. Maura Kilgore from Cowgirl Seahorse, thank you so much for being a guest on Rediscovering New York. You can find out about more about the business at cowgirlseahorse.com. Is that correct? That is correct. That is correct. Okay. And they have uh, their uh, drag brunch. It's called, I'm sorry again. Uh, a brunch becomes her. A brunch becomes her. And that's the... That's the first Saturday first of Saturday every month. month. And then drag bingo is the third Sunday. That's right. And music on Mondays at that's 7 right. o'clock. And we have trivia on Wednesdays and Taco Tuesday every week. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you, Maura. Well, we've just finished this week's journey to the South Street Seaport. If you have comments or questions about the show or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles on Instagram and Twitter are jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. And one more thing before we sign off, I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I are dedicated to our clients and come to our work with passion and bring to our clients the best expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc for Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way with Noreen Sumter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners, looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? 
I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 